0: The Hebrew writer says that the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces asunder between the joints and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. And it is a critic of the thought and the intents of the heart. Paul writes to Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. And as such, it is profitable for reproof, rebuke, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Jesus Christ, the master chef said, it is written, it is written, it is written, that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall a man or a woman live. I, like you, believe that the Word of God is untainted and unmixed with error. It is divine in its origin, inspired in its totality, regenerative in its power, inexhaustible in its adequacy, comforting and convicting for the soul, personal and social in its application. I want to turn your attention to the Word of God in the Gospel of Luke Chapter 19, verses 10 through 13, although later on, we will read the complete passage. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then to return. And he called ten of his slaves or servants and gave them Ten minas and said to them, Do business with this money until I come back. Do business until I come back. Now, just before this parable, Jesus had left the home of a notorious sinner a chief tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And people were appalled that he would go to his home because he was a chief tax collector, despised, denigrated in that society. But Jesus reminded them that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save That which was, Zacchaeus, or is lost, that was his mission. So I want to talk about the big why, the big why, that's our mission. Because ultimately, he wants us to become the best, highest, holiest, and holistic person that we can be, but that will happen when we can answer the big why. Let's pray together. Ah, gracious God, our Father, we pause to capture your presence and we ask afresh as we sit under the authority of your word. We want to hear you speak, not what we have to say. So would you teach our minds and control our emotions, govern our behavior and transform our lives so that whether we are here or there, now or then, time or eternity, dead or alive, asleep or awake, in this body or out of it. We want Jesus Christ to be the center and circumference, the sum and substance, the basis and boundary of all that we ever hope to be. For the sake of the kingdom and the glory of the high king, we pray. In fact, we praise you. Amen. I'm honored to be Here at the Second Presbyterian Church once again, if I wasn't at Hope, I'd be right here at Second Presbyterian Church. Thank you for all you are to our city and what you have been to Hope, a church you planted some 33 years ago. And I've had the privilege of being there 11 of those years now. But I have to confess I made a mistake I asked your pastor, Dr. George Robinson, to preach at Hope this weekend, and I was there Saturday night, and I must tell you that I'm nervous. (laughs) One of the reasons I asked him to come is to keep Hope members from trickling in over here, one by one, family by family, to hear him. I said, let's cut that out. Let's just get him to come to hope. We all can hear him at the same time. (laughs) But he's so blessed our people. I'm not exaggerating. And glorified God and edified them. Um, And he's preaching again, 930 this morning and 1115. Um, Dr. Robinson has become a close, fast friend. And thank you for sharing him with the community and the city of Memphis. And thank you for your wonderful track record as those who are in CityServe are here to testify about. And so if you allow me a few minutes, all of that was for free. That didn't count. (laughs) To talk a little bit about the big why. When Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He had references to Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus was now in the kingdom, but also that which is lost. That's my mission, Jesus said. Jesus had two missions. One, whatever it took to glorify God the Father on the divine side. And on the human side, it was to seek and to save the lost. That was his why. And when I understand why, then the what and the how is more easily developed. So he came to seek and to save the lost. That word in the Greek is a nautical term. It's a seaman's term. It is the picture of a ship that is drifting aimlessly without an anchor, being driven by the sea, the winds and on the sea, to an uncertain future and an inevitable crash that's lost. Again, it is the picture of a ship that is drifting aimlessly on the sea, driven by the winds of the sea and without an anchor headed toward an uncertain future and an inevitable crash. But Jesus says, I came to save, to rescue, to deliver, and to expand so that people can become their highest, holiest, and holistic best selves. That's what I came to do. A lot of people get uncomfortable with that word saved. They say it's antiquated. But if you've ever been in trouble and been rescued, then you don't have a problem with that word saved. It means to be rescued, to be liberated, to be expanded. Jesus said, that's what I came to do. That's my why on the human side. Peter Drucker, the business guru has said that a mission statement ought to be succinct enough to fit on a t-shirt and quotable enough that you can say it at 3 a.m. in the morning with a gun to your head. I like that. But long before the business guru Peter Drucker said that, Jesus said, Rufus, let me give you the why in life. And that is... To seek and to save that which is lost. And what I have given you, I want you to do business around that premise. And if you do, you will become the highest, you will become the holiest, and you'll become the most holistic, best person that you can be. You mind if I step down a minute? Yeah, no? Okay, good. I appreciate the freedom. Amen. <laughs> ah, this feels good. How many of you have ever had Starbucks coffee? Well, I've never had Starbucks coffee. I get my caffeine in Coke. But I love Starbucks storage. Do you know what the why of Starbucks is? What the mission of Starbucks is? It is this to inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. I like that. To inspire and nurture the human spirit, one person, one cup, one neighborhood at a time. That's their why. Howard Schultz was born in 1953 of Jewish parents, Frank and Elaine. After service in our military in the country, Frank went on to become a truck driver. They lived in Brooklyn, New York and were a poor family. He had a younger brother and a sister. And at an early age, he realized he had some athletic ability. And so he figured his way out of poverty was going to be through athletics. And in 1971, when he graduated high school, he won a scholarship to North Michigan University and he played athletics. When he graduated in 1975 with a degree in communications, he went to work for a small Swedish coffee company, selling parts, if you will, but a Seattle company in Washington caught his attention called Starbucks. He was fascinated with their knowledge of coffee beans. And so he went to visit them and was so impressed with the company, though it was small, that he said to them, one day I'd like to work for you. It didn't take very long. In 1982, he was hired by Starbucks to be their director of marketing. And when he took a trip to Milan, Italy in 1985, he then understood his why. There in Italy, he discovered that coffee was not something that you just drink. But in Italy, coffee houses were community. And they were on every corner. Literally, there were 200,000 coffee houses throughout the country of Italy. He was fascinated with their quality. But he was fascinated with the fact that people did not just come to their coffee houses to drink coffee, but to find community. So he came back to the United States in 85 1985, very excited, and he said, We've got to do something over here. What I saw in Milan will work over here. What we have to do is sell coffee, liquid coffee. Now, at that point, Starbucks only sold coffee beans. And they said to him, Howard, you got two problems. Number one, we sell coffee beans, not liquid. And liquid coffee sales are going down in America. Number two, you'll never be able to convince people to buy coffee for $3. And so he quit the company and raised money for two years, came back with investors, and in 1987, he bought the company. And the rest, as they say, is history. But is it? No, it's not, they enjoyed wonderful success all across the globe, 17,600 stores across the 39 countries, billions and billions of dollars in profit. But in the year 2000, they fired him. They fired him and he became the chairman of the board. For eight years, Starbucks just cruised along, it plateaued. And as they were declining in their sales and their culture, they asked him to come back in 2008 and said, would you lead us again? And he did. And the first thing he did was said, we've got to get back on mission because they had drifted from mission. I almost feel like preaching right now. This is a coffee company. And if a coffee company can be on mission, understand their why, drift from their mission and get back to their mission, surely the church of Jesus Christ can do the same because we get lost and drift in our mission sometimes. We're the greatest organization that God has ever created and when we're on mission, can't be beat. But I'm our own mission. So Jesus says, This is what I have come to do to help you understand the big why. And he gave them this parable. Because they thought the kingdom was immediately about to come. But he said, no, it's going to be an interim of time where you are going to have to do what I've come to do. And seek and to save those who are lost are drifting on the sea of time with winds of change and circumstances, driving them to an uncertain future and an inevitable crash. I need you to throw out a lifeline to them like he threw out a lifeline to us. That's what my why is. When I was a little boy, I wasn't raised in church, but when I got in church, one of the first hymns, I remember them singing. I remember to this day, I didn't know what it meant then. They will say, Throw out the lifeline, throw out the lifeline. Someone is drifting away. Line, someone is drifting today. I know what it means now because somebody threw a lifeline out to me. That's why I like the old hymn. I was sinking deep in sin, far from a peaceful shores, very deeply stained within, sinking, sinking, sinking to rise no more. But then the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters he lifted me and threw me a lifeline. Now safe, safe, safe am I. So Jesus said this. Let me give you these five and I'll take my seat. These five and I'll take my seat. I'm not going to dwell on any of them for any length of time. But he gave his 10 servants these gifts and said with them, I want you to seek and to save those who are lost and drifting. Can I give them to you? It's the acronym of LOTS. That's my made-up word, L-O-T-T-S, all right? And he gave them lots. Number one, and I want you to repeat it after me, he gave them life. life. Number two, he gave them, oh, opportunity. opportunity. Number three, he gave them the same amount of time. time. Number four, he gave all of them talent and S, he gave all of them some money. Yes, he did. He gave them some money. He gave them three months of wages and said, I want you to do business with this until I come again. He's given us life. Now notice in this parable, it is not he gave some five talents, one, two talent, and one one talent. In this parable, he gave all ten the same equal amount. What does that mean? Jesus was saying to his son, I'm giving you life. You have breath, and I'm giving it to every single one of you. You all have life. You have what you need to succeed in order. To be on mission. You got it. He didn't slight any of them. He gave them all life. If you're looking at me, you're in that crowd. If you're breathing, you're in that crowd. You certainly know you're breathing in that mask. You are in this crowd. He's giving you life. The second thing he's given us is opportunity. Now remember, he gave 10 people the same thing. They all had enough in order to succeed. Opportunity. Now let me pause to say this. In this fallen world, there will never be equal opportunity, though we ought to fight for it. I certainly strive for it. But in this fallen, sinful world, there will never be equal opportunity for everybody. But, but, but in the spiritual life, I can have equal opportunity because God is the divine leveler, which means that no matter what my ethnicity, no matter what my education, no matter what my socioeconomic background, I can pursue the plan and purpose that God has for my life. Let me say that again. In the spiritual life, there is equal opportunity for anybody to pursue the plan and purpose God has for my life, to pursue my why. I learned this afresh when I was about 14 years old. I was a brittle asthmatic, and so I was underdeveloped and physically as far as my structure was concerned, and I didn't have a good self-image of myself until I discovered that the most important thing about me is not what I feel or what others say, but what God thinks about me. The most important thing about me is what God says and not even how I feel or what others say about me. And when I understood that, I knew opportunity was mine. Nobody and nothing could stop me from pursuing God's plan and purpose for my life. I've given you life and I've given you opportunity in the spiritual realm. I've given you something else. I've given you time. He gave them all the same amount of time. He went to receive a kingdom and to come back. They had the same amount of time as you and I have every day or every week. The question is how I'm going to use it. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach me to number my days that I may apply my heart To wisdom, we all have the same amount of time. I don't know about you, but I've got more days behind me than I have ahead of me. And I want to use the time I have to continue to develop my why so I can be my highest and holiest and my holistic self best self in the sight of God and spend my days seeking and saving those who are lost, throwing out a lifeline with the time I have left. Then I have talent. I have talent. He's given me a unique ability to do what only I can do and nobody else can do quite like I can do. You have that talent. He gave them all the same amount of talent. In this particular parable, you have life, you have opportunity, you have time, you have talent. Listen, my innate abilities and my personalities is God the Father's gift to me. But what I become is my gift back to God. I'm gonna say it again, my innate abilities and personality That is God the Father's gift to me. Question is, what I become and what I do with it is my gift back to God. And then lastly, he's given me some money. Don't look at me funny. Most of us here have some money. And he gave each of them three months wages and he said I want you to do business with this until I come it's not just money I want you to do business with your life with opportunity with your time with your talent and with this money invested do business for what to seek and to save that which is lost why because I'm returning can I close with this Luke 1915, he said this: "Do business." By the way, that word, uh, pragma usaste means pragmatic or practical, or invest. I'm, I want you to invest your life, your opportunities, your time, your talent, your money. In seeking and saving that which is lost. Why? Because verse 15 says, when he returned, when he returned, when he returned, you do know he's coming back and either he's coming back to get me or I'm going to meet him. But sooner or later, when he returns, then he is going to ask me, Rufus, what did you do with what I gave you? What was your wife? And when he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves, these servants to whom he had given the money, be summoned to him so that he would learn how much they had made by the business they had done. The first slave appeared, and said, Master, your minna has made 10 mennas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, since you have been faithful in a very little thing, you ought to have authority over 10 cities. The second one came saying, your manna master has made five minutes. And he said to him also, and you are going to be over five cities. And then another one came and said, master, here's your manna, which I kept tucked away in the handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you are a demanding man to take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, from your own lips, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you not know that I am a demanding man taking up what I did not lay down, reaping what I did not sow? And so why did you not put my money in the bank? And when I came back, I would have at least collected it with interest. And then he said to the other slaves who were present, take the menna from the one away from him and give it to the one who has 10 there's going to be an accounting one day when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ what have you done with what I have given you I close with this I love this story anybody ever heard of Sunday school do you know how it started it was not started by a preacher or a pastor it was started by a printer a businessman In 1781, Robert Rakes, who lived in Gloucester, England, um, recognized that something needed to be done. He created what we call School on Sundays. He had the assistance of Reverend Thomas Strzok, But in 1776, he noticed that as the poor country, kids and families were moving into the city now to work from farms to factories, many of them. They began to work in the cities and children, as young as eight years old, were forced to work in these factories instead of the farms, Uh, but their little fingers and little hands would get caught in the machinery and they would get cut off and they would be maimed And they were no longer usable. They had unsafe working conditions, working six days a week. And so these kids started crowding. The only time that they didn't have anything to do, for the most part, was on Sunday. And rakes recognized that they were getting in trouble, picking pockets, breaking into homes, while people were actually away at church. They were, were going toward a life of crime. They couldn't read. They couldn't write. And so he was burdened as a Jesus follower, as a member of the Anglican church. And he decided to do something about it. And he decided to start a school on Sundays. Now in that day, public education was not free. If you were wealthy, you could afford to send your children to school. But that was not the lot of poor and working families. And so this printer was so burdened that he understood clearly what Jesus meant when he says, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he started school on Sundays. And he taught these kids how to read and write and out of his own pocket hired the first teacher and from his printing company printed the alphabet and other curriculum. And then he engaged other Anglican members of the church to give their time and their talent and their money And over 31 years later, with school on Sundays, 400,000 English kids were learning to read and write and live a moral life based on the Word of God. It caught on, too. In 1790, the Quakers adopted it. In Philadelphia, in 1811, two women in New York, Isabella and Joanna, adopted it. And by 1899, 10 million kids were enrolled in Sunday school here in America. All because a printer understood the burden. Here is my why. This is why I exist. To seek and to save that which is lost. Because somebody threw out a lifeline to him. So what am I doing with mine? You notice the first person said, you gave me one, I gave 10. He excelled. That is, he did everything he could. He excelled. The second one took his one and made five. He did very well. That is, he did everything he should. But the last one, rebelled. It was a passive rebellion, but he rebelled. He only did what he needed to do. Where am I? I tell you, when I'm talking about being lost, I'm not just talking about the initial point of salvation because salvation is progressive. There are times in our lives when we're walking with Christ that we get lost in other areas, in our profession and relationships. We get lost in all kinds of things. We need somebody to throw out a lifeline to us. My job, my why is to seek and to save that which is lost and drifting pre-salvation or post-salvation. That's what I'm called to do. The question is, are you excelling by doing everything you can? Are you doing well by doing what you should? Are you rebelling by just doing enough to get by? That's my conviction and my reminder to you because My innate abilities and personalities is God's gift to me. But what I become is my gift back to him. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious God, our father, thank you for giving us everything we need to succeed. You've given us lots. You've given us life. You've given us opportunity, you've given us time, you've given us talent, you've given us some money, and you've asked us to do business, to invest, to be pragmatic, to be practical as we seek and save, rescue, deliver, help people expand to be their best, highest, holiest holistic selves thank you for coming down and throwing a lifeline to us may we discover that that's our why too and throw lifelines to others in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ our Lord we pray amen